starting a series. Last week was our first week in it. Today is our second Sunday in it. And what we are doing is we're talking about the fact that we are chosen. And, and the reason that that is such an important topic for us to discuss at this point in time is that we've got a problem. Last week, I described the problem as rampant individualism. Last week, I described the problem as rampant individualism. Today, I'll describe the problem as how we love the stories of the rugged individual. You know what I mean? That person who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps and makes something happen out of nothing. We love those stories. We, I myself, I, I, I really love the stories of like the pastor who moves to an area and he starts a church, and then it just dramatically grows, and then you've got thousands of people who are, who are going to this church, tens of thousands of people who are going to this church, and it all started with some, you know, just really fiery individual who decided he was going to do something for God, and then God blessed it, and it made it something huge. I've read the books. I've gone to the seminars. I've paid money for the conferences. I've experienced all the lessons for all this kind of stuff, and all of us love the stories of the person who pulls themselves up, the person who makes success come out of nowhere, the person who's the rugged individual. And do you know why we love those stories so much? Well, I don't know about you, but I'll tell you why I love them so much. Because it makes it sound possible for me to be that person. When I hear someone else's story of how they did this thing, they took this risk and it paid off for them, it makes me emboldened to think that I could make the same thing happen. Now granted, when I go to the conferences and I hear about the successful other pastors, I don't always feel motivated. Sometimes I feel demotivated. Sometimes I feel guilty because those guys are having all that success and I sometimes don't feel like I'm having that same level of success. And so sometimes I get myself in this place where I blame myself for all of the problems because other people made it happen. Why can't I make it happen? And maybe you feel that way in your job. Maybe you feel that way in your family. Maybe you feel that way in all kinds of other places that you've been, you've experienced. We love the story of the rugged individual because it lies to us and tells us that anyone just so long as you do the right thing at the right time with the right amount of talent and have the right people around you in the right environment, in the right circumstances, then you can achieve amazing results. And for some reason, we forget all the right, 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 right that has to be right in order for the amazing results to happen. We only get the picture of the rugged individual who bucks the trend and then has this great success. We love the stories of the individual because as Americans, we have what is known as the American dream. The American dream that any one of us can be anything that we want the children's shows say, believe in yourself. That's the place to start. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't believe that you are capable of more than you've already accomplished. With God on your side, you're capable of a lot. You're capable of things far beyond we could ask or imagine because he is capable of things far beyond what we could ask or imagine. But the problem is Christians in America are prone to exactly the same kind of individualism as everybody else. Our world views the individual as the amazing story, the success story. We idolize them. We put them on pedestals. We think about how great they are and we find ourselves jealous of them but secretly believing that we could be them. And some of us push and push and push and achieve. And some of us push and push and push and don't achieve. 
And some of us don't push at all and achieve. And some of us don't push at all and don't achieve. And we come back to the story time and time again. And the truth of the matter is that Christians are just as prone to this as anyone else. In fact, I think largely Christians in America are more prone to individualistic thinking than anybody else. And the reason for that is that we have God on our side, don't we? I mean, I already said it. God is capable of more than we ask or imagine. That means you are capable of more than you ask or imagine. Jesus says, my followers will do greater things than I've done. And we individualize it to say that I must be capable of these things. And since I am capable of these things, since God is on my side, then I shouldn't have to deal with hardship. I shouldn't have to deal with frustration. I shouldn't have to deal with other people persecuting me. I shouldn't have to deal with limitations on my freedom because God is on my side and the rugged individual bucks all the trends and traditions. And as Christians, we have fallen into the exact same temptation as the whole rest of the world, but perhaps even worse Because we believe God is on our side, and that must make us invincible. Well, there's a solution. The solution is odd, though, because in the book of 1 Peter, I believe we find the solution to this way of thinking and this way of behaving. The problem is that the book of 1 Peter doesn't tell us what's wrong with individualism. It just tells us what's true. And the truth is, in fact, the solution. The truth that we saw last week is, I think, the overarching truth to our problem of individualism, and it is that we were chosen by God for His purposes. We were chosen by God for His purposes. Individualism says, I'm in charge of my own destiny. Individualism says, I make my own path. Individualism says, I did it my way. Individualism says, I will find my own success or my own failure. And individualism is what happened in the Garden of Eden when God said, don't eat from the tree, it'll kill you. And Adam and Eve said, looks good to us. God, we weren't chosen for your purposes. We are choosing our own purposes. Our problem is this rampant, rugged individualism where we begin to believe that there are no forces outside us that should control us. We deny viruses. We deny sicknesses. We deny infrastructures that would limit our freedoms. And we do it because God is on our side. But the truth, as Peter would tell us, is that you aren't in this world for your own purposes. You aren't in this world for your own choices. You aren't in this world for your own aims. You were chosen by God for His purposes. Now, that is a very difficult thing for us to deal with, especially as Americans, because if you've been in the American church for much of your life, then you might have been encouraged time and time again with the, um, what's the right way to put it, the self-help approach to Christianity. The self-help approach to Christianity goes like this. You've got a problem. Here's a six-step solution. Do the six steps. Your problem will be solved. That's the self-help approach to Christianity. The problem is you've experienced this. We've all experienced this. Self-help books don't actually solve your problem because you can look at the book. You can read the diet. You can follow the instructions, and you can get six of the seven of them done. You might even get eight out of the ten of them done. You might even get all ten of them done and still have a problem. 
You could do all 10 of those diet things and then get yourself in a car accident where you're laid up in a hospital for a while. And your diet goes out the window because other people are feeding you glucose. And so you're not getting any healthier. You're, you know, all kinds of circumstances. But still, we don't like the idea that God chooses us. We want to be in charge. The question that I want to focus on today and for the next couple of weeks is not necessarily how can you be free when God has chosen you? I'm not going to talk about that. I want to talk about why would God bother to choose you? Why would God bother to choose me? The question is not how can I be free? The question is why in the world would God choose me? Last week we saw the answer. And that answer is going to take a little shape today and more shape over the next couple of weeks, but I want to show it to you from last week's passage, from chapter 1. I'll put it up on the screen here. It says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. God is the one who called you and he is holy. So at the very baseline level, we have to recognize this. God choose, chooses us not so that I can be free, not so that I can be liberated. At the fundamental level, God has chosen me so that I would display his holiness. We were chosen to display his holiness. Let me describe to you again what holiness is. Holiness is the Bible word for something that is special and set apart. I asked the question today about fall because you know what happens in my life when I think about fall? I think about all the fall traditions. I think about things like Sunday afternoon football. And I thought, maybe I should ask you all the question of what are you going to do on your Sunday afternoons if you don't have football to watch? Because we don't know what the season's going to look like this year. Or, or maybe, maybe something else is going on in your life about that. I'm not exactly sure. But, but here's the deal. We, we are in an environment where things are changing constantly. And fall is one of those times where things change dramatically. And I love the fall because I start thinking about Christmas. And at Christmas, we put up the lights, lights that stay in our garage all year long. But at Christmas, we put them out and turn them on. At Christmas, we put up a fake tree, a tree that stays in a box in our garage all year long. But at Christmas, we put it up and put decorations on it. And at Christmas, we get out the Christmas plates with the little reindeer on them. And I tell you what, there's something about those plates. They're lighter than our normal plates, but they feel better. They're, they're nicer. They, they just, I mean, they, they're quaint. They're cute. They're not masculine in the slightest. They aren't red or green, but they have little reindeer on them. And we like to mess with Jen by making sure that none of the reindeer are ever pointing in the same direction around the dinner table, that they're all going a cattywampus away from each other. But there's just this idea we get to bring out the Christmas plates. Let me tell you something. The Christmas plates are holy. Not holy in the sense that if you touch them, you get to go to heaven, but holy in the sense that they are separate, set apart, and special. And when we pull them out, we know that they aren't just set apart, they're also special. They're better, they're good. We like them more, but we keep them separate to keep them special. Holiness is a Bible word that refers to God as the one who is permanently, completely, and totally separate. So when he comes near, it's incredibly special. 
when he comes near, it's incredibly good. Because God's holiness is like that. Now, it's time for us to dig into today's chapter. So what I want you to do is go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to start right at the beginning. I'm going to walk you through it. Because we were chosen to display God's holiness. And I want to show you what that means. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. I think that's a verse that preaches in our day today, and I might just leave it right there. You know, I would love to just show up on a Sunday morning and read that verse and say, need I say more? Let me just ask you a question. Have you been on Facebook recently? If you have, you know that this verse is incredibly appropriate for our world today. Have you seen Twitter recently? Have you done any social media? Have you watched the news at all? This verse is incredibly appropriate for us today. Therefore, Christians, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In the middle there, he's talking about craving spiritual milk. Now, there's a passage where Paul talks about the difference between milk and meat. And he says that you need to be a person who hungers after the meat, but you're, but you're not mature enough to handle it. You need milk. And so Paul makes the distinction of milk being an immature food and meat being a mature food. That's not what Peter's talking about here. What Peter is talking about is the fact that milk is what babies crave. They cry for it. They scream for it. If they don't have it, but they want it, they will let you know. And Peter is saying you need to be like that person with the things of God because you have tasted and the Lord is good. Do you know why we are so enticed by malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind? Because they taste good. It's why we call it malicious. Because it's delicious. Because it it reaches into our soul and it says, here you go, now you have power. When you are malicious against someone else, when you hold malice against someone else, you have power over that person. They don't know you have power, but you know you have power. You have power over that person. And when you slander them, they don't know how to get back at you because they don't know who said the slander, but you've got power over them. And when you envy that other person, they don't know it, but you are holding them back in your heart because you can't treat them as an equal because you envy them and all these things we are all guilty of because these things are individual things that put me above the other person and Peter says get rid of it because you've tasted that the Lord is good you don't need these other things before I move on from this verse I'm just going to ask you straight up Do you have malice in your heart towards any human being? Any human who represents a political entity? Any friend or relation to you who holds an opinion you find repulsive? Do you have malice in your heart towards them? Do you have envy in your heart towards anyone who is more successful than you or has that thing that you don't have or has that spouse that you wish you had? 
Do you feel a need to present yourself in one way while in reality you're another person inside? Get rid of all malice and envy and hypocrisy and deceit and slander. Why? Because you weren't chosen to represent yourself. You were chosen to represent God's holiness. You were chosen to taste and experience that God is good and therefore be a representative of his goodness. Let me put it to you this way. You were chosen to represent God's holiness and we display his holiness through lives of goodness. Let me read you some more passages about this. Just keep going. Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Who's that talking about? That's talking about Jesus. As you come closer to Jesus, Jesus is like a living stone. And he's going to give us the metaphor here in just a little bit. The living stone is Jesus who was rejected by human beings when he was crucified, but chosen by God the Father to be the Savior of the world. He says, you come to him, this rejected one by humans, but chosen by God. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter flips the metaphor. He starts with Jesus being the stone that some rejected and God chose. Then he says that you're a stone since you follow him and you're being built on the stone of Jesus into a stone house. And then he flips the metaphor and says now you're inside the house and it's not a house, it's a temple and you are doing sacrifices to let the world know how good God is. Verse 6, for in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus is the stone that many people reject, but God chose And those of you who come to Jesus and believe in him are those who receive the stone and not reject the stone, and then you become stones and part of the whole building. But keep reading, he says, they, those other people who reject Jesus, they stumble because they disobey the message, hyphen, which is also what they were destined for. Again, that is a difficult phrase for us. Some people are destined to reject Jesus. It's an uncomfortable phrase for us. And you might spend a lot of time worried about how do I know if I'm chosen or not. That's the wrong question. The better question is what do I say about Jesus? Have I rejected him? If I've rejected him, then I am a person who is destined to reject him. And if I have accepted him, then I am a person who God has chosen to accept him. Keep reading. He says, but you, verse 9, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have mercy. He is saying, listen, here's the deal. 
God is holy and he's glorious. And the world has rejected Jesus and there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are the people who have rejected Jesus and are destined for destruction. And there are the people who have received Jesus who are those who've been chosen by God even though the world rejects you. You've been chosen by God to be built into a house to be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to the politics of this world. You don't belong to Facebook or Twitter. You don't belong to any of these things. You belong to God. Why? To declare the praises of him who called you. So look at verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, because this isn't your home, you're strangers here. As foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And here it is. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We were chosen for God's purposes. We were chosen to display his holiness and we display his holiness through lives of goodness. Peter says there are two kinds of people in this world. There are the people who receive Jesus and the people who reject Jesus. The people who reject Jesus are those who are destined to do so. The people who receive Jesus are those who were chosen by God to do so. But here's the interesting thing. Even among the people who reject Jesus, those are people who should see you as good. That is a very interesting thing for Peter to say. These people reject Jesus as a stone they don't understand. They stumble over him. But you, you can let your life shine in front of the pagans so much so that when God sends Jesus back again, these people are like, wow, I'm so glad I got to see the goodness in that person's life. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I cannot imagine this. People who reject Jesus should see goodness in you and in me. Of course, the question is, do they? Let me show you verse 13. Because he takes it a very, very tough place further. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter writes this letter to people who are living in the Roman world, Christians living in the Roman world. 
Do any of you remember what the Roman emperor was like in the first century? Was he a fan of Christianity or not? Things got worse and worse and worse for the Christians throughout the first century. Peter himself was killed on a Roman cross as a martyr because he would not declare total allegiance to the emperor. He wouldn't call the emperor his lord because Jesus was his lord. But this is Peter saying, submit to every human authority. This is Peter writing a letter to people who are being persecuted by the Roman government, to people who are being persecuted by the Roman emperor. And he says to them, in the midst of your persecution, submit. In the midst of your persecution, honor the emperor. In the midst of your persecution, submit to every human authority. What Peter is saying is something that boggles my mind, but is absolutely true. We display holiness through lives of submission. My heart breaks that in our current world, the most defiant of all people that I see are the Christians. My heart breaks that in our world today, there are churches of thousands upon thousands of people who are specifically rejecting the guidance of their governors and having thousands of people meeting together in an auditorium at the same time with no precautions whatsoever. This last week, a church in California, my home state, a church in California got on the news because their pastor said, this is an issue of religious freedom and we won't follow the governor's guidance to close churches. And so last Sunday, they had thousands of people, something like six or 7,000 people in their auditorium. The place was packed shoulder to shoulder. Masks were nowhere to be seen. People were holding hymnals and singing out loud. And as a result, they then went to court and they then took the state of California to court. And in the California Supreme Court, they said, okay, fine, let Let us continue to meet and we'll go ahead and practice social distancing guidelines until this whole thing gets settled in the court system. And I think, why bother? Peter tells us that Christians are supposed to honor the emperor even under circumstances of oppression. I don't understand why Christians get to be the most defiant people in our world today. Well, it's because we are guilty of the same kind of individualism as the rest of the world. It's because we believe no one has a right to stomp on our freedoms because we have God on our side. And since we have God on our side, nothing can stand against us because if God is for us, who can stand against us? And therefore, who can stand against me? Because my individual ideas of what is right and wrong are the only thing that really matters. And yet Peter would say, you were chosen to display God's purposes. You were chosen to display his holiness. You were chosen to live lives of goodness. You were chosen chosen to represent a God to whom you are a slave. And that's why you can be a submissive person. He goes specific, Peter does, in the next few sections of this, and it gets difficult for us. Take a look at what happens next. Verse 18, he says, slaves, 
in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Okay, he already said submit to the emperor who's about to kill you. Now he says, slaves, submit to your masters in reverent fear to God, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Pause. I have to say right here at this moment that this is not Peter endorsing slavery. The New Testament was used a couple hundred years ago to endorse slavery, to say that slavery was written into the fabric of the world and that God himself supported slavery. I declare to you today that that is false because Peter here is not saying slavery is right and he's not saying the slave masters are right. He's saying slaves submit. And the reason I know he is making a point that is bigger than individual slavery is that if you keep reading, he says some things that touch your life too. Slavery is not a biblical concept, and Peter's description here is not endorsing slavery as a biblical thing. In fact, keep reading and I'll show you something uncomfortable. Verse 19. He says, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You see, what Peter is saying, and this is uncomfortable for us, is that your calling is not to get free. Your calling is not to stand up for your rights. Your calling is to submit. And even though slavery is an unbiblical concept, God doesn't like slavery. Even though slavery itself is an unbiblical thing, so also is revolt. So also is standing up for your rights. Revolting against an unjust master is an unbiblical concept. Standing up for your rights against an unjust system is an unbiblical concept. The reason I know that is that when Peter gives you a model to follow in this passage, he does not give you a slave who did it right. He gives you Jesus. Look at this, verse 21. To this you were, here's our word again, called, chosen, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, we, I said that revolt is an unbiblical concept. I said that standing up for your rights is an unbiblical concept, and that is true. Standing up for someone else's rights is a very biblical concept. 
Standing up for the rights of the poor and the oppressed is an incredibly biblical concept. But standing up for your own rights is not. Because Jesus set you an example that you should follow. And when he was attacked, there was no deceit in his mouth. He hurled no insults. He died. For you and for me. It is submission. The kind of submission that represents God is a submission that is willing to suffer for doing good. Willing to suffer for doing good. And you know this, you've seen it. It was the power of nonviolent protest that brought about the biggest change in the civil rights movements. And to this day, it is still the power of nonviolent protest. When you see on the screen a peaceful, nonviolent person getting brutally beaten by some representative of authority, your heart breaks and God is calling you to stand up for the rights of the oppressed in that moment. Not your own rights, but to suffer yourself for doing good for someone else. Because that's like Jesus. That's representing God and his holiness. But there are actually two more metaphors or I I guess illustrations that Peter gives us here. And they sound like commands about specific issues, just like slavery sounds like a command about a specific issue. But as you look deeper, you recognize it's it's a principle that applies all over the world and all over our lives too. Take a look at this. He's now talking about wives and husbands. Verse 1, chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as Jesus, who would suffer even though he was doing the suffering unjustly, even though he didn't have to, he was willing to do it because he was a person who lived in submission. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now... Listen, this is, this is difficult for us because I know we live in a society that doesn't like this idea of women in submission to their husbands, especially when it's compared to the relationship Jesus had with his uh, abusers. You know, Jesus willingly went to the cross in the midst of abuse. Does that mean Peter is encouraging women to stay in abusive situations? And some people have used this passage to say exactly that, where they would say, woman, you are in an abusive situation. Jesus was in an abusive situation. Women, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. That's not what Peter is talking about here. And how do I know that? Because of the point Peter makes. He says, why are you in submission to your husband? And he gives them two reasons. He says, reason number one, your husband's not a believer, but maybe he will see the glory of the goodness of God in your life. And that will well up some faith in his heart. 
And maybe he will see the purity of your life and that will well up some goodness in his heart. Woman, he says, Peter would say, wife, submit to your husband's first goal so that they could come to know God because you were chosen to represent God's goodness and his holiness. But there's a second reason. And the second reason is because that's the way holy women have always done it. And every one of them has always put their hope in God. Now, as a sidebar, I'll say to you who are here and to anyone who's listening on the internet, if you are a slave and have the opportunity to get your freedom, get your freedom. If you are an abused person and have an opportunity to get free from that abuse, get it. There is no hindrance in any of these passages that say you must remain in a situation when there's an open door. What it's saying is if you are in a situation without an open door, this is how you approach it. God has chosen you to represent him in this world. So this is a submission that puts your hope and your witness above your comfort. My hope in God is more important than my comfort. My witness to the world around me is more important than my comfort. So this submissiveness is a submission that lets the world see God's goodness in the midst of my life. One brief additional thing I'll say about that. This is not a passage that is telling women you are not allowed to braid your hair. This is not a passage that is telling women don't ever wear makeup. This is not a passage that is telling women earrings are evil. Some people have used this passage to say that. But pay attention to what Peter is actually saying. And he's saying the thing that makes you beautiful is what's on the inside. And if you are relying on the things that are on the outside of you, you are missing the mark. The thing that makes you beautiful is what's on the inside and what flows from the inside. That's his point. His point isn't that all women should look completely drab all the time. He's saying that women should let their beauty come from the inside. And then, you know, you're free to do whatever you want to do with your hair. I think that's fine, you know. But let the beauty come from the inside is what he would say. But we're not done because he has to address husbands. And see what he says. He only gives husbands one verse, but it's a doozy. Husbands. In the same way, again, in the same way, in the same way as Jesus who suffers because he's representing something way, way bigger than his one hour or day of pain. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And some people have looked at this passage and they've said, see, Peter right here is saying that the woman is the weaker partner. That implies that the man is the stronger partner. And they use this as a relationship guideline to say that men need to be the strong partner in the home because women need to be the weaker partner in the home. And they're making that as if it's a point. Let me just let you know something. Peter, when he writes these words in his day, no one reads those words and says, oh, so you're saying women should be the weaker partner in the home? No one reads those words that way. Do you know why? Because they already believed it. Because the people back in Peter's day 2,000 years ago already perceived women as weaker. Women had less education. Women had clearly less physical strength on the average. 
And women had never been to war like the men had been to war, almost every single one of them. And so as a result, in every aspect, weak was a good adjective for the general woman side of life. And so back in Peter's day, no one would have asked a question about whether or not the woman was considered the weaker partner. They would have taken that part for granted. The part that they wouldn't have taken for granted is the fact that he said, respect them. We don't do that. We don't respect the weaker thing. We respect the stronger thing. If I'm walking down the beach in California... And there's some little scrawny guy who's even smaller than I am. I don't respect his muscles. And if I were a fighting person, he's the kind of person I would pick on. But if I'm walking down Venice Beach and I see one of these guys, you know, deadlifting 400 pounds, and he's ripped to high heaven, and he's got a 32-pack, I'm not messing with that dude. I respect him and his bulk. I'm not getting near that guy. See, we respect the thing we fear. We respect the thing that's bigger, that's stronger. And Peter does the countercultural thing where he says, respect this weaker vessel. And then he goes even farther when he says, as an heir with you of the promise women were not allowed to inherit in Peter's day. And Peter says, that woman who's with you, you need to respect her. That woman who's with you, I know you consider her the weaker partner, but you need to remember she is co-equal with you because she is an heir of the very same inheritance that you're about to get. When God hands out eternal life, You're not getting any more than that person standing next to you. And in fact, Peter would say, and if you do anything to hinder her, your relationship with God will be hindered. You see, when he talks about submission, it's a submission that respects the weak as equals. I know you look at this passage and you think think Peter is talking about slaves and he's talking about wives and he's talking about husbands, but what he's really talking about is Jesus. He's talking about you and me being the kind of people who are chosen by God to represent him, chosen by God for his purposes, to represent his holiness, chosen by God to represent his goodness in this world, to represent his holiness by lives of goodness, to represent his holiness by lives of submission, a kind of submission that puts others before yourself, a kind of submission that respects even weaker people as if they are equals with you, a kind of submission that is willing to suffer for doing good. That's what Peter is talking about. He's talking about a kind of thing that eliminates your individualism entirely because you were chosen by God for his purposes to represent him in this world. So what does it mean for us? What do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? Let me ask you a couple questions. What would the world think if they saw Christianity the way Peter describes who we are? What would the world think if they saw Christians where husbands and wives lived in harmony? 
What would the world think if they saw Christians who sacrificed their own freedoms, their own comfort for the sake of the poor, the oppressed, the weak? What would the world think if they saw Christians who were so committed to lives of goodness and integrity that even though the world accuses them of doing something wrong and even though the world puts restrictions on who they are and how they live, they never can deny that those people are good. They do what they say they will do. Those people are honest. Those people are not hypocrites. Those people never engage in the deliciousness of maliciousness. Those people are never envious. What would the world think if we looked even the slightest bit like Jesus? Or maybe let's flip the script. What does the world think when they see Christians Husbands and wives who cannot get along with each other. What does the world think when it sees Christians getting all up in arms about some particular issue that only relates to Christians that they're upset about? What does the world think when they see Christians displaying a kind of unbridled loyalty to a certain political figure or political ideal? What does the world think when it sees Christians who out of their mouth say, do not slander, while behind their backs or on Facebook post memes that denigrate other people? What does the world think when Christians are exactly like the rest of them? Do they see God? Do they see a chosen people? Do they see anything worth pursuing? Peter says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter also says this, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I want to conclude today by telling you that you've been chosen. You've been chosen by God for His purposes. You've been chosen by God to demonstrate His holiness, His goodness. To make it something that hopefully you can remember this week, you were chosen to shine God's light. And wherever you go this week, whatever experience you have, whatever opportunity you have, whether it's face-to-face with masks on, whether it's in some sort of personal situation, whether it's working with someone who really needs your help, whether it's working with someone who totally annoys you, whether it is online or not online, you are called by God. You were chosen by God to shine His light. And when you do, the world will see the glory of God through us. Let me encourage you this week. 
you have the power of God with you. Jesus didn't just suffer. He also rose from the dead. And no matter what you and I face, no matter what you and I go through, there is a power of God at work in our hearts. The passage is true. If God is for us, who can be against us? The application we usually have to that verse is selfish. Therefore, I will do my own thing. But the application God wants us to have is selfless. If God is for me, I can endure anything so that I represent him well. I pray that you would represent him well. I pray that you would shine his light this week in your life. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.